there is a trend on the internet where people post realizations they should have made long ago, prefaced by, I was today years old when, such as, I was today years old when I found out the first episode of a show is called The Pilot, because it's the first time it is on air. Or, I was today years old when I found out we say break a leg before a show audition because we're hoping someone ends up in a cast. Well, I admit that I had such a moment preparing this sermon when I honestly realized for the first time, honest to God, the extent to which this season of Lent, this time of preparation and self-examination, has everything, and I mean everything, to do with our hearts. The prayers and scriptures of Lent are ridden with cardiac injunctions. Rend your hearts and not your garments, declares Joel. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, says Jesus. Create in me a clean heart, sings the psalmist. And today we receive the Ten Commandments from Moses, summed up in the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Our remembrance of God's mighty acts at the great vigil of Easter will recall God's promise to Ezekiel that hearts of stone would be turned to hearts of flesh again. And we will join with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, post-resurrection, where their hearts will burn as they break bread with the risen Christ. Breaking beating, burning, bursting. Our hearts are restless, writes Augustine, until they rest in you, O God. God is concerned with our hearts. While we tend to delineate hearts and emotions from mind and intellect, those in antiquity regarded the heart as an integrated life force, One definition describes the heart as the ruling center of the whole person, the spring of all desires. Today, Jesus and friends make pilgrimage to the ruling center of God's people, Israel, the great Jerusalem temple, the site where heaven was said to meet earth, the very home of God's presence. Under construction for 46 years, this was actually the second temple, the first having been built by King Solomon in seven years, echoing the creation story in Genesis 1, whereby God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, and God's glory filled the earth, his temple. A reflection of the Garden of Eden, the temple menorah stretched out with arms like the tree of life. Just as Adam and Eve were called to work and keep the garden with God, the priests and Levites were commanded to work and keep the temple. 
But just as humans rebelled against God and were exiled from the garden, so too did Israel's leaders choose their own way, choosing to rule on their own terms, leading to their exile from the first temple. So at this point, the exiles have returned and the Jerusalem temple has been rebuilt. But take two isn't going much better. Not unlike our preparations for Easter, the Jewish people were preparing for their own remembrance of the Exodus at Passover, and faithful sojourners from throughout the region had come to say their prayers, offer sacrifices, and prepare their hearts for the celebration. They were going through all the right motions. But Jesus becomes dismayed at what the temple courts had become, indecipherable from an emporium, the text says, turning over tables, driving out the animals with a whip of cords, and scattering coinage. Jesus cries in anger and dismay, Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Notice, the vendors and lenders don't question Jesus' admonition. Like a kid caught red-handed in the cookie jar, they don't need their sins spelled out. They must have heard about Jesus' miracles because they simply ask for a sign of their own. Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days, Jesus responds. On this side of Easter, we know that Jesus was speaking of his body. In John's gospel, Jesus is the temple. He makes the case from the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt, tented, camped out among us, full of grace and truth. It's why later Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well that the day is coming when true worshipers will not worship on the Samaritan mountain or at the Jerusalem temple, but in spirit and in truth, any time, any place, the beginning of virtual worship. Jesus is the temple. And if Jesus' body is the temple then we who are baptized into his body are called to be temples too. Living stones bearing witness to God's rule and reign on the earth. So if we, you and I, are called to be temples of God's Spirit, my question for you this morning is this. Has your heart become a marketplace? Has the ruling center of your life become more fueled by the prevailing forces out there? Commerce, consumption, competition, than the rule of God's love. Like many of us, the money changers were not bad people. They were just doing their jobs, going through the motions, doing what they had been taught in service of the temple and their religious traditions. Like the money changers, none of us are immune to allowing the temples of our hearts to become more akin to 
a marketplace and a marketplace mentality than the dwelling place of God. Perhaps before we even realize it. Jesus cleansed the temple. Lent is a time to cleanse the temple of our hearts as we open our lives to God's table-turning activity. A mere cardiac probe, not to speak of an open-heart's operation, is a frightening endeavor, but it can also be life-saving. And we can face it with confidence, knowing that our great physician, Jesus, is on our side. So allow me to lift up three practices of Jesus this morning for good heart health. Number one, rage. Turning over tables in the temple, Jesus names injustice and exploitation for what it is in righteous indignation. Jesus allows his anger to animate his actions. He isn't at all violent or mean-spirited, but Jesus in this story also is not at all polite. Friends, somebody here today needs permission to feel. Somebody needs permission to rage. Somebody here today needs to be reminded that you are not a machine. You are not a robot. You are a human. We need to feel. It means that we are alive. It is okay to feel what we feel And it is okay for others to feel what they feel. It can be deeply uncomfortable, this feeling business, to sit with others' feelings. But that is the work of the heart. I love what the Reverend Michael Rudzana says of the heart. He says that of the heart, there is only one valve, open, And closed. And so to love with openness of heart is to let all the other emotions in at the same time. And thus to learn to sit with all the feelings is essential to being able to love God and neighbor. You know, due in part to a culture of toxic masculinity. We tend to honor the intellect far above the affect. And for far too long, women and children and minorities especially have been dismissed, ridiculed, shamed for showing emotion. But Jesus raged. He also wept. We can too. We need to. Especially during this time, when multiple pandemics have revealed injustices and generated grief beyond what any of us can bear on our own, don't keep it bottled up. You're not a robot. Sometimes we need to rage. And because you're not a robot, you are also not replaceable. Which brings me to the second practice, rest. The fourth commandment we get today, 
to keep Sabbath, whether on Sunday or another time, to regularly turn over the productivity table and unplug. For many of us, it feels selfish. For some of us, especially those in helping professions where self-care is preached as gospel, it can also be a source of burden and guilt to admit how poor we are at resting. But if all the commandments are an expression of love towards God and neighbor, have you ever considered that your resting is an act of love, that your neighbor needs you to rest? When we rest, we simply have more to give. And we simultaneously confront what has been labeled grind culture. Grind culture, have you heard that? Fostered by a modern gig economy. Illustrated most entertainingly by St. Dolly Parton's Super Bowl commercial for the website platform Squarespace. Did you catch it? She rewrote her classic song, Nine to Five, to be five to nine p.m. Prime time for entrepreneurial side hustles, such as building an online web business. And while work, ethic, and creativity is laudable, the reality is that too many people in this country and elsewhere work multiple jobs on top of full-time jobs just to make ends meet. If we're telling the truth, it is a natural outcome for a country built on free labor that was willing to dehumanize and dispose of black and brown and indigenous bodies for the sake of profit and productivity. It's a hard truth that continues to hurt us all. Observing the strong connection between racist economic systems and this grind culture we inhabit, Candler School of Theology graduate Tricia Hersey founded the NAP Ministry, right here in Atlanta in 2016. She has since devoted this ministry to spreading the message of rest on social media. And before COVID, she hosted evocative art installations comprised of black bodies, black people, literally napping, (laughs) lying in a resting state in public places, such as the Pont City Market. She writes, Stop saying rest is a luxury or a privilege. It is not. It is a human right. The more we think of rest as a luxury, the more we buy into these systemic lies. I will never donate my body to capitalism. I will never donate my body to white supremacy. Let us remember Rest as reparations, and rest as a form of resistance. Rest can help us get there. It gives us the space to live and embody divinity. End quote. Living temples, indeed. So we rage. We rest. And finally, We risk. From an early age, we are conditioned to maximize gains 
mitigate losses, manage risk. We are taught not to put all our eggs in one basket as we diversify college applications and stock portfolios alike, selecting fallback schools and seeking to edge out the competition. There are robust parenting conversations among parents of toddlers about whether elementary-aged children are best served by sampling various sports or specializing early if they hope to play in college or professionally decades later. We exert incredible effort and energy to make ourselves as marketable as possible to schools, jobs, romantic partners, selling and promoting ourselves. And yet, contrary to a marketplace that seeks stability, security, safety, and success, true worship always invites us to sacrifice and risk of time, of money, of privilege, and of power. Not to sell ourselves, but to give ourselves away for the sake of love. Jesus knew his actions in the temple could ultimately lead to his death, and yet he put all his eggs in the Easter basket. Will we have the courage to do the same? To place our identity, our hope, our trust in the power and abundance and generosity and resurrection of God so much that we are courageous to surrender our egos, our wills, our greed for the sake of God's call on our lives. I don't know what risk looks like for you, but there's somebody out there today, at the edge of the diving board, ready to take the leap. And I pray for you today. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the nudge you need to follow your heart. It might break your heart. That's the risk. But God will meet you there, too. In fact, the psalmist writes, the contrite heart and the broken spirit. The broken heart is the most precious sacrifice and risk we can possibly offer to God. I think it's because a broken heart is an open heart. That's all we're really doing. When we rage, when we rest, when we risk, We are allowing our hearts to be broken open so that love might flow freely from God's heart into our hearts, into the world, and back to us again and again and again. Open hearts flowing with love. My friends, this Lent, let us demarket our hearts. Let us rage, let us rest, let us risk, remembering that we are not machines, we are not for sale. We belong to the love who gave us life and who longs 
to live in us. Amen.